have landed at High Motor, where we are doing college football today. Andrew Dowdy here on the Hero Sports Podcast Network. I'm going to have Dan Hawkins on the show here in a couple of minutes. He's the former Boise State head coach, former Colorado head coach, currently back at his alma mater out there in California, UC Davis, entering his third season there. He's done a pretty remarkable job turning around that program so quickly. He's always a great interview, so we're going to chat about his career I want to ask him, you know, why he takes job, why he why he um, leaves jobs, what it's like leaving a job involuntarily, like that Colorado job. I want to talk about those days after getting fired at Colorado, all kinds of stuff, and then I'm going to give my take on an article that I hope to God doesn't become a trend in college football in recruiting, and then we're going to do some mailbag questions to end the show. Grab a couple fan questions from this week's mailbag. You can send those to me. On Twitter at High Motor Pod or at a Dowdy88. You can find all episodes of High Motor on iTunes, Spreaker, Stitcher, Overcast, basically everywhere. Last week I had Pete Blackburn on the show. We did an Oscars preview, uh, some predictions, some other stuff. And then next week we're going to do some more college football. We're going to do some NFL draft for the first time this year. I have a couple good guests lined up for that. So that'll drop next Tuesday, February 26th. And we are now joined by Dan Hawkins, UC Davis head coach. Hey, coach, you just put a bow on that 2019 signing class, hopping into spring ball here. How did recruiting go this winter for you guys? Well, I think we did a nice job. We didn't sign as many our first year here. We signed over 30 guys, and I think we have 14, 15 guys in the boat right now. Um, And we're just in a unique situation, obviously, in California. There's a lot of players here, a lot of kids, and we get to be around them a lot. They come to our campus a lot. We see them a lot, develop a good relationship with them, and really like those guys. A lot of those players had multiple offers, and some at FBS and Power 5 schools, and uh, but like the vibe at Davis and like the campus and the university and the academic part of it and the fact that we were able to put some W's on the board and get a championship uh, has been real attractive to those guys as well. How does that recruiting strategy evolve? You know, your coaching staffs have all been west of the Mississippi. So, you know, compared to some other coaches, you've been in the same general side of the country, but still in different regions, still with different programs, obviously, still recruiting different high schools near different junior colleges. How does your approach change or does it approach your approach change dramatically? And how many of those relationships do you keep? still largely in California, which we obviously recruited a ton of players out of here, and we did it a lot at Boise, and uh, we certainly did at Colorado as well, so I've known a lot of guys in this state for many years, and we have great relationships up and down the state. Uh, We do have some kids from Washington and some from Oregon and some from Arizona, Uh, so all that familiarity really helped us. You're pretty active on Twitter compared to most head coaches across FBS, FCS, and not just the common program promotional tweets that we see. And back in the day, you were doing graphics, more elaborate things before a lot of programs were in terms of like recruiting-wise, things like Sports Illustrated covers, sending those to recruits. Is that a conscious effort to be out in front, to be engaged in ways that maybe not most coaches are, or is that kind of just you doing you? <laughs> I think it's a little bit of both. It really is. Uh, I think I read this book a long time ago, um, and I think it was called Megatrends at the time, but 
it talked about computers and technology and, uh, you know, if you were behind, you, you were going to be extremely behind. So even when computers first started coming around, I really tried to get engaged and understand them and learn about them. And um, and so I've just been staying, I've just stayed involved that way. Um, and so part of it is, is me wanting to be on the cutting edge and not getting left behind technology-wise. I also understand that's how these kids interface these days and really how a lot of people interface as well. So um, it's, a little, it's a little bit of both. On the show recently, I had T.J. Otzelberger, the head coach of South Dakota State men's basketball, and he was talking about when he got out of college, he said his, his only kind of career goal was to be a high school basketball coach and a high school teacher. That's really all that he wanted growing up. That's all he wanted through college, and he got that right away, his first coaching job, high school basketball coach and then it eventually became that he wanted something more he wanted to become a college head coach and he had a new goal of that and then he said with each of his coaching stops it kind of changes it evolves into wanting something different when you started coaching did you have a career goal in mind in terms of like a specific position at a certain school or a certain type of school I always wanted to be a great husband and a great father and a good football coach and I didn't. It wasn't. It was not. Wasn't my goal to be a Division One guy or or anything. I just wanted to be a good football coach and kept learning. And things happened. And you know, probably to some degree, I probably should have thought it out a little bit more. Uh, but things happened. Doors opened. You had opportunities. You moved along. Uh, I know as opportunities came up for me, it was all about challenge and it was all about growth and the opportunity to learn more and do more. And that kind of helped push me. Uh, along as well but I was never thinking oh I got to get to this level or if I'm here I mean I and people always say hey what was the what was your favorite level what did you like the best and I always tell them man I I liked every level I really did and I had a great time coaching high school football I had a great time being a JC coach I had a great time being an NAIA coach I'm I've coached at every level, literally, other than the NFL. I mean, and I've enjoyed every opportunity. So, to me, it's not the amount of people in the stands or what you're getting paid or whether you're on TV. That's not that's not why I coach. Uh, so, I, I just always wanted to have a sense of purpose, be a good football coach, be a good husband, be a good father, and however that worked out, I was good with. That Colorado job, was that one that, you were waiting for? Did you have your eye on that job specifically, and then you passed on other opportunities while you were at Boise State? It was both. Uh, they obviously came off of a couple of years in Colorado where they had tough, a tough situation. Uh, I really relished that a little bit of trying to go in there and be the right guy that would help uh, solve all those issues. Uh, probably, <laughs> probably thought a little bit too much of myself at that point. Um, but and it was also kind of the right time at Boise. I've been there eight years. Really felt like they needed to change. Really felt like I needed to change. Uh, I had four coaches or four um, kids in my house, and that affected things as I as I was getting recruited to other jobs before because they were in high school, and those guys had a hard time uh, adjusting a little bit. So I didn't want to move around a bunch. Um, so both of, both of that drove it a little bit. Can you tell right away, or I guess the question is, like, how quickly can you tell if an opportunity is or isn't right? For example, when you're at Boise State, were you approached with opportunities that might have 
piqued your interest initially, but then you realized, you know, it, it wasn't a good fit for you and your family as you started to evaluate a little bit more? Well, that's always a good question, I think. Um, I spend a lot of time counseling our young coaches on our staff now about their next move and how do you look at that and what are the best ways to look at it. And then I think you just have to look at some of the other dynamics as well. And quite frankly, sometimes that's hard to figure out. You probably, I probably didn't have enough experience along the way to know what questions to ask or to lean on the right people or to talk to some people that have been around to ask them, what should I really ask? What should I really look at? Um, I was probably a little naive in some of my moves and not doing a good job exploring that. Do you ever regret taking a job or passing on a job? No, not at all. I really don't. I I don't look at it really that way. Um, You know, I guess maybe if you have any regrets, you wish maybe you had uh, a little bit of a little more knowledge, a little more experience, or a little more savvy uh, to handle every situation maybe a little bit better. Uh, But I don't. I I don't ever have any regrets about any of that. And they all they all they shape you and they form you and they educate you in certain ways. And I mean, I'm blessed now. I, I've never been a better coach than I am right now. I'm in the zenith of my coaching career. I really feel that way. And a lot of it is uh, the stops along the way and taking good notes and learning from both your successes and your failures. Back when you were at Boise, early 2000s for a couple of years, yeah, in the early 2000s you had a staff that had three future FBS head coaches on it. And Justin Wilcox, now a Cal, Brian Harson at Boise State, and Chris Peterson, obviously at Washington can you tell when you have a coaching staff like that or specific coaches that they have whatever it is? Could you tell with, with Justin, Brian, and Chris that they have whatever it is ta- that it takes to be a head coach? Well, I think, number one, I've always been about good people. And people go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Well, if you get people that care about others, um, that have a broad perspective about life, um, they work hard, they're smart, good husbands, good fathers, good people, um, can think beyond football. I mean, to me, that's always kind of what I've always leaned on. And then to me, everybody's a different type of a head coach. But I'm always trying to develop our guys, and I'm always giving our people a lot of autonomy and trying to grow them. I'm not trying to – I always say I macromanage. I don't try to micromanage their situations. Uh and then ultimately, I think the big deal is, A, can you, jet, can you juggle a lot of balls and can you take the heat? And sometimes you really never know that until you get right in the middle of it. Is there anything that you wish went differently with the hiring and firing process in college football? You know, whether that's contracts, the search process, buyouts, whatever it is, is there anything that you don't like how coaches are hired and fired? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Wow, that's a – I guess one of the things that I probably don't like, the people start throwing out names and this guy and that guy. and uh, A lot of times they don't even know if that person's a good fit for that school. But he seems like, quote, unquote, the hot guy, the hot name. Um, and like I said, sometimes people don't do a great job really examining, is this person going to be a good fit for us? And sometimes you have these, these search firms that – basically do the same thing well a lot of times they don't know these coaches they don't know these people but that's just kind of the list and then people and i get it people are looking for fan appeal they're looking for selling tickets they're looking for splash 
Um, and so it is interesting a little bit as Moneyball has kind of come into play in the, in the National Football League. You're seeing them hire a lot of, quote-unquote, I say no-name guys, but, but younger people that a lot of these guys have sort of identified and said, hey, I think this guy could be really great. And you look at Sean McVay, who's obviously an example there. But it's a lot of it is, is I get it, fan appeal, ticket appeal, booster appeal, who's going to make a splash, uh, trying to get a name guy, rather than just kind of going, who's going to be the right fit? Like, who is the guy that really understands who we are as an institution and a program and who can really help us that way? Uh, and like I said, I get it. I totally understand that side of it, but it can be, I don't know if frustrating is the right word, but it's uh, maybe not as efficient or maybe as effective as it could be at times, in my opinion. Has that changed a lot in the last 10, 15, even 20 years? I mean, we're about, what, 12, 13 years since you left Boise for Colorado, and then obviously you've had other job changes. You talk about throwing out names when when no one is really sure if that's actually a good fit for that program and that school. Do you think something like social media has had that much of an impact on searches or maybe not as much as we think it has? Uh, well, I think there for a while it had a huge impact on it. And maybe it's changing a little bit now that people get away from that. But you've certainly seen here even the last couple of years where places have attempted to hire somebody and there's been so much kickback on social media that they can't do it. They can't do it. And uh, so it still is driving decisions to some degree. So we've mentioned you leave Boise for Colorado. That was after the 2005 season. You're there until 2010. How do you look back at, at, at your time in Boulder now 13, 14 years later? Uh, it was great. It really was great. Uh, a lot of really super great people there. Still have a lot of really good friends there kind of a magical place to live. It's a great school. And I learned a lot. And, yeah, we would have loved to win more games and do the things they wanted. Uh, but I learned a bunch there and a lot of really great people. And uh, they made, made a few strides a little bit. I hope they continue to keep working. The facilities have improved a great deal there. Um, and, you know, hopefully with the new coach, they'll be able to, to kind of get the kind of wins they want. But, um no one likes to lose no one likes to get fired uh all that stuff is not fun but just like you tell your players a lot of times adversity is where you learn the most and i certainly took a ton of notes a ton of notes um but uh it says the good bit uh humility before honor so it's always good to get humbled a little bit so you are dismissed uh by colorado in 2010 what were those days like after that decision, can you can you give us any idea of, of where your mind was at and how you were approaching things right after uh, you heard that you were fired at Colorado? Probably a little tough. I took it really hard. I took it really tough. Uh, some guys that have been in the profession and been around a little bit, maybe been fired a few times, can be a little bit more a Teflon, I guess. That was kind of my first time having that happen. And I did take it really hard, really hard because I'm a guy that ultimately blames myself. Um, and I'm a guy that believes in mastery orientation and people taking ownership. And, you know, you can point fingers all you want, but you better look at that guy in the mirror. So it was hard. It was really hard. Uh, our family was obviously very tight, very good about it. My son Cody was a 
just absolute phenom through the whole thing. He was great, stood up tall, showed his true colors, was proud of him for that. Um, the other side of it, though, too, is I think about people said, hey, you know, did that bum you out? Did that hurt your feelings? Did that? And, and it did. But I also go, hey, there's a lot of people. There's a lot of, you know, death and divorce and disease and unemployment and people coming back from the war. I mean, I'm, you know, you can't sit around and feel that bad. I mean, I'm, I'm still, still alive. I'm still functioning. I still have a good marriage. I still got a great family. You know, okay, so it didn't work out in this job. You better pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get going. Yeah, I remember back in, it was 2009, I was in college at the University of Kansas. I was a junior in college, and that year in football, they started 5-0, and but they dropped their final seven games, and during that losing streak, I remember listening to the radio, they had lost, I think it was three in a row, they were going up to Manhattan to play Kansas State, and it was, it was the morning of that game, and the, the radio played an interview with Todd Reesing, then the Kansas quarterback, and they... You know, we're asking him about the skid. They're asking about the the pressure and all that. And he said something to the effect of, "Yeah, you know, it's been tough. We want to end the streak for everyone, for ourselves. But guys, at the end of the day, you know, it's not pandemonium. You know, there's no cancer. Nobody is dying here. You know, it's just football. We're just playing a game here. So, do you have a similar a view of that? And how do you keep that perspective of life versus football? Are there any times when you need to kind of pinch yourself, I guess, while you're in a tough moment and then evaluate reality? A part of the beauty of sport is the joy of winning and the agony of defeat. And you have to you have to sort of embrace that. I don't I don't know necessarily when we lose a game that uh, you're going, Hey, that's okay, I got a job and it's all good. I mean you're 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 in the moment there a little bit. I mean you you're always keeping things in perspective, that's for sure. Um, it's probably a little bit different when you when you get fired and that's certainly where you know, to me, I had a much better perspective on things because, like I said, I mean, there's, there were a lot of people coming back from the war at that time that were uh, having a tough time. The economy was coming off of a tough stretch, and I was very well aware of that. I mean, uh, I get I get all that. So, uh, yeah, I think perspective is always good, but... I think part of the pain you get sometimes from losing, I say it's good. It's, that's what the beauty of it is, really. I mean, the highs and lows and the, the emotions are so rich both ways, and you, you have to be able to take all that in. Now, getting into your current job, you took the UC Davis job a couple years back right after accepting the coordinator position down there at FIU and uh, with Butch Davis. Were you expecting interest from UC Davis, or, or were you surprised? And then what ultimately pushed you into that direction, decide to pass on that FIU coordinator offer and go back to your alma mater? I was full-on fired up to go down with Butch Davis and go to South Florida and learn from Butch and get back in it. And uh, I was very excited about that opportunity. This thing came up at Davis. Um, obviously, I'm very close to the Davis program and, you know, all that whole family. And when things went down uh, – you know, unfortunately for Ron Gould, you kind of thought, well, they, they might call me, and sure enough, they did. Now, the amazing thing is how fast Kevin Blue, our AD, was able to put it together because he got it done in about a week because I said, I'm going to Miami. I got a plane ticket. I'm going. My bags are packed. I'm out of here unless you can make this thing happen. Ultimately, the decision came down to me was being able to be in an environment that I grew up in, not just 
hey, yeah, here's the Aggie coming back. But you have to understand what UC Davis football is. And it's about people. It's about school. It's about football. It's about the balance of, of all that. And to me, that was extremely appealing. Now, obviously, my family is out on the on the West Coast, and I got grandkids that I love probably just like every other grandparent alive. I love them a bunch, uh, as well as my own kids. And that, that was part of it. But I think to come to a place that that really developed me, Bob Foster and Jim Soaker and, and uh, Bob Biggs and all these great coaches who had won 20 conference championships in a row, um, Bob Biggs, the Hall of Fame coach, Mike Malati is from – uh, from Davis. Chris Peterson is from Davis. Gary Patterson spent some time at Davis. Um, but to me, to be in that environment and help out and help promote and accentuate and develop that, to me, was just really fulfilling. And it's a life of purpose. And, you know, we want to win games, and we are. We want to win championships, what well, we are. But it's about a university that's 35, 40,000 people strong. It's ranked internationally in many categories nationally we're like cal and ucla playing in the big sky conference it is a major university um so to come back and help fuel the fire and help build our culture uh to me is just a really rich thing and helping fuel that fire helping build that culture a key piece of that was keelan doss he returned last year now he's gone preparing for the nfl after a big senior year what kind of player do you think that keelan doss can be at the next level Keelan Doss is an amazing, amazing, amazing person. And people sometimes, I think, don't like hearing that. They just want to hear. Can he run? Yeah. Is he a burner? No. He does have good size. He's a 6'3", 205, 10-pound kid. Um, He can go get it. He can snatch. He'll play special teams. Uh, Really committed to being great. And, you know, we're really fortunate to have him. Ron Gould recruited Keelan. Uh, but for everything he is as a player, he's much more as a person. And whoever's lucky enough to get him at the next level, he's going to be, and I hate saying this because it's so cliche-ish, but he's like a New England, New England Patriot guy. Like, he's going to go do his job every day. He's going to show up. He's going to be in the training room. He's going to be in his playbook. He's going to stay in that city. He's going to know what to do. He can play number three, number two, number one. He can play special teams. He can, he'll be that guy. He will be a professional and that was just tremendous. And when your best player is a guy like that, it really helps your football team. Keelan will continue to rise in the charts. Everybody gets – he's going to go to the combine. We'll see who runs in the 40. But the more teams get to know him, the more he's going to rise in the charts. You lose Doss, but offensively a lot of guys coming back. Top rushers coming back, Jake back at quarterback, a lot of receiving production back, also at tight end. What are – some potential breakout guys, though, that you could see taking a big step forward this season, um, not necessarily to replace Doss, but to also fit in that offense uh, that could have a big breakout season. Yeah, you mentioned. I mean, I think we could start playing today, and we'd be pretty darn good. I mean, we uh, Jake Mayer is a guy starting to get NFL interest. He's not the tallest guy, but he can sure sling it. He's everything you want. He's a Drew Brees-type guy. And uh, uh, Jared Harrell is another receiver that we have. He's a sophomore that can run, is an extremely talented player. You mentioned Wes Priest, our tight end, who's very productive. He can be an NFL guy. we got a couple of backs, Alonzi uh, Gilliam and Teron Thomas, both productive players. Uh, but we have, a lot of, we 
we have a lot of firepower, and they're, we're good on defense too. We got we've got some future NFL guys uh, playing on that side of the ball. So Ron Gould did a great job recruiting. We've done a great job recruiting, um, and like I said, most every guy we sign, uh, we have a lot of guys, not a lot, but several guys that have had Pac-12 offers, and nearly every guy we've signed has had Mountain West offers. So we've got some talent. So when you're sitting in a, a living room with a recruit who has Pac-12 offers, what's the pitch there? When you're saying that we'd love to have you here instead of Berkeley or Corvallis or wherever, what is your pitch to a player like that that has that type of offer? The recruiting pitch is, and I don't like having pitches, I like trying to find the right fit. And First of all, if you want to be in a college town in California, it's a great place to be. If you want a great education, a top 10 education in the country, in some cases top in the world, it's a great place to be. And football-wise, amazing football tradition in the past, but Kevin Blue and our our athletic team have raised $40 million. We're going to build a new uh, facility at the end of our stadium, and now we show that we can win a championship, we can get the playoffs, and we can win. So, again, I talk about the balance of life. If you want to stay in California, you like the weather, we're close to Napa, we're close to Tahoe, we're close to the Bay Area. And if you want a great education, and you don't have to be a rocket scientist, but you have to say, yeah, I understand the difference in educational models. If you want that and you want to play championship-level football, this is a great spot for you. And we want guys that are in that in that vein, and I think our culture is extremely rich. I think the – we use terms like love freely, and it's not corny, and it's not stupid, and it's not made up. Uh, we have unbelievable kids. We have unbelievable culture. And I think when they get around our guys and they get around our co- coaches, they feel that. All right, Coach, I'll let you go here. Thanks for talking today. Hope spring practice goes well. Hope you get out of that um, as injury-free as possible. Uh, best luck this season, and take care. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thanks for all you guys do for SBS football. It's great. Thanks a lot, Coach. I didn't know that when Colorado hired Hawkins, there were reports that they were actually considering a high school coach. I went back and found there was an ESPN article back in, this is uh, December of 2005, and it says, and I quote, Hawkins interviewed with CU Athletic Director Mike Bone on Saturday, the first interview he conducted. Hawkins, former Colorado player and current UCLA assistant John Embry, and Denver Mullen High School's Dave Logan were the three candidates that spoke to Colorado officials according to a person familiar with the search. And you'll remember that they actually replaced Hawkins in 2010 with Embry. So Embry interviews five years earlier, doesn't get the job, former Colorado player, he comes back and actually gets the job later. He only lasted two years. But if this is accurate, um, they were considering being a rare program to hire a high school coach, especially a rare Power 5 program to hire a coach directly from high school. It does not happen much. And just in a, a quick look back, and in no way is this remotely comprehensive. I could have missed some guys, but I think there have only been three or four in the last several decades. you got most recently Tony Sanchez at UNLV. He goes from Bishop Gorman to UNLV. I don't think that that's that big of a leap, honestly, given Bishop Gorman's uh, level of high school football compared to where that UNLV program was at when Sanchez took over. But that is nothing like Dave Logan potentially going from Denver Mullen to Colorado. UNLV was a terrible, miserable program who needed a jolt of something different. I get that Colorado was struggling at the time that they hired Hawkins, 
But I actually love the Sanchez hire. I still love it. I think it's going to take a little bit more time, but I think he has them headed in the right direction. Whereas hiring a Dave Logan from Denver Mullen to Colorado, that would have been quite the leap. And it came out a few years, maybe five or six years ago or so, that Dave Logan, uh, there were some issues with with benefits and um, violations at the high school, at Denver Mullen. He also went to a new high school. I'm blanking on which one he went to after that. Uh, but there were some issues with Dave Logan, so maybe it's, it is a good thing that they de- did not go that direction. Let's move on. I want to address a Bleacher Report article from late last week. It was posted on February 15th, so last Friday. It's from Ian Wharton. It's called The Most Overrated Five-Star College Football Recruits in the 2020 Class. So he has a list of five five-star recruits, he said, are overrated. These are high school players. This is elite high school talent that he is calling overrated. And I don't know Ian personally from you know what I've read. He does he does great job on Bleach Report. He's also with Optimum Scouting. He knows his stuff. He absolutely knows his recruiting. He knows his scouting. That is besides the point. And I I understand that overrated has a place in sports and in everything. I get it. Just on Sunday the other day, uh, Mike McGlinchey he was he poked the Twitter mob by posting his most overrated movies list. He had Pulp Fiction, Big uh, Lebowski, and I think Fight Club was the third one. I get it. Overrated has its place. I mean, just last week I had Pete Blackburn on the podcast for an Oscars preview, and there are overrated things like we talked about, like movies. He tore apart Bohemian Rhapsody on the show. I actually finally watched over the weekend. I couldn't agree more. I think it is so bafflingly overrated, such a thin movie, so there is a place for overrated. You know, those lists can be fun. They can be interesting. There is no place for most overrated high school football players. Like, we're really going to do this. We're going to sit here and call five-star recruits overrated. We're going to call, these are high school juniors. So these are kids in the 2020 class. These are 16, 17-year-old kids. We're going to sit here and call high school junior football players overrated. These are kids who have completely busted their ass for years. They're being offered free college. I mean, come on. This has completely triggered me. I I almost never look at comment sections or Twitter replies, but I was curious on this one. I I wanted to just to make sure I wasn't the only one who thought this was pure garbage, and I wasn't. The the first comment on the article on Bleach Report is a Facebook comment from a guy named Devin, and his comment, and I quote, this is just a crap concept for an article. Some of you writers need to get over yourself. This seems like a new low even for BR, BR being Bleach Report. And I think that's kind of a low blow. I like what Bleach Report has done over the last four or five years, really since that sale to Turner probably. I'm not sure exactly when that was, probably longer ago than four or five years ago. They have some really darn good writers. Ian is a hell of a writer. Like I said, he knows his stuff. They've had some awesome feature pieces over the last four or five years. This isn't the old Bleacher Report that carried along unpaid writers. They have legit stuff. We should not be treating Bleacher Report like what they were back in the day when they had all those crap amateur writers. That's why this article is even more terrible. You know, I I would understand it. I wouldn't even blink an eye if it came from a crap site that just does stuff like this, but you'd expect better. Like, you would expect this from the old Bleacher Report. You'd expect this from some... 20-year-old college kid in Idaho who hasn't watched film on these recruits and definitely hasn't scouted them. And these guys, 
these five players, they might be overrated. I have no idea. I mean, maybe the, some of these five-star kids, again, there are five players on them. I'm not even going to list them because it's so absurd. Maybe some of them won't live up to their billing, but that's completely beside the point. Where is the most underrated three-star recruits article? Where is the most underrated four-star recruits article from Ian? He knows his stuff. I'd be more curious on most underrated four-star kids. Why are we trying to tear down a five-star recruit by saying he's overrated? Maybe it'll add fuel to their fire. I hope it does. I assume all, if not, excuse me, most or if not all of these five players have probably seen this by now. It's probably been shared with them. Hopefully they use it as fuel to the fire. I don't understand. I guess there's this natural inclination to hit the overrated pieces. And again, I totally get it. There's a place for overrated. This is not the place. The most overrated five-star college football recruits in the 2020 class is not that place for overrated. Okay, let's do mailbag. Again, send any mailbag questions anytime to at HighMotorPod on Twitter. You can also email me. My email is on the HeroSports.com profile, andrew.dowdy at HeroSports.com. First mailbag question coming from my bud, Jim Oxley. He asks, biggest impact transfer for the 2019 college football season? The answer here is Jalen Hurts, Justin Fields. I think those are by far and away the top ones. I'm not going to argue one's impacted over the other, but that's not that interesting of a conversation, I don't think. So let's go deeper. I know that the question is biggest impact transfer, but those are the obvious ones. Let's go deeper. I'm going to answer it with most underrated. Maybe we'll try to counteract that most overrated recruits garbage and talk about most underrated. So my most underrated impact transfers for 2019, let's do let's do two here. I'm going to do two players in the Pac-12. Number one, Jacob Eason. So when you, Jacob Eason was the five-star kid, top-rated uh, recruit in 2016, and when you get your job taken from you and you you get hurt, you get your job taken from you, you transfer, you sit out a year. He's thrown seven passes uh, since that true freshman season 2016. People are going to forget about you when it's been that long. When you get your job taken by Jake Fromm, uh, you sit out the season transfer into Washington. I think he only attempted seven passes in 2017. That's I think all of this is what kind of makes Jacob Eason underrated moving into 2019. He's replacing Jake Browning, assuming he wins a job, who are replacing Jake Browning at Washington. And this is a guy, like I said, top-ranked former uh, quarterback in the 2016 class, Gatorade National Player of the Year. He won that starting job at Georgia as a true freshman. I know that we've had kind of this bar of true freshman quarterback play raised that was raised by the guy who replaced him, Jake Fromm. Uh, Trevor Lawrence, he's raised it even more, some other guys. But Jacob Eason was still pretty darn good in 2016. 16 touchdowns, 8 picks. Didn't take too many shots downfield. He only had... About 2,400 passing yards on 370 attempts. So that's less than 7 yards per attempt. With that, you'd like to see the completion percentage a little bit higher than 55. And that completion percentage is very, speaking of very overrated, that's something that's very overrated. But in his case, you'd like to see that a little bit higher. I know that he's inheriting a Washington offense that loses some guys. But still, I think Jacob Easton, he's going to be a huge impact player. Assuming that he wins a job, I think he's number one most underrated 2019 transfers. Number two on most underrated 2019 transfers, staying in the Pac-12, Juwan Johnson, receiver going from Penn State to Oregon for his final season. He's a grad transfer, redshirted 2015, played three years at Penn State. He had the breakout 2017 season. Uh, 54 receptions, battled some injuries last year, 
but he's a big, huge, capable guy. Huge guy. Penn State has him listed at 6'4", excuse me, 6'4", 225. And now he's going to Oregon. They get Justin Herbert back. They lose leading receiver Dylan Mitchell to the draft. Mitchell declared early. He was the only guy at Oregon last year who had more than 40 receptions. He was also the only guy that had more than 450 yards. He's the only guy that had more than five touchdowns, five receiving touchdowns. So with Justin Herbert coming back with some key pieces back on one of the best offensive lines in the country, should have some time to throw there. Should allow Juwan Johnson to get downfield. I think that Johnson is going to have a monster year in a great situation. So top impact, excuse me, top impact transfers for the season. I think it's Jalen Hurts, Justin Fields. In terms of underrated, give me Jacob Eason, Juwan Johnson. Okay, one more from the mailbag from our friends over at Mission College Football. Seth and Mike down there in Iowa, they ask, who is this season's UCF? Is it UCF again? Is it Army, Fresno State, Utah State, Cincinnati, somebody else? And this was a big one last year because of what UCF did uh, in 2017. And then it's a big one this year because of what UCF did again last year in 2018. And now it's going to be a big one this year. I have Cincinnati as this year's UCF. And yes, they don't totally fit that this year's UCF mold. Um, When I'm asked, my thinking when I'm asked, who's this year's UCF? My definition of that is a team that was solid, not awesome or elite the year before. Maybe they won six to seven, eight games, and then they're going to compete. They're going to kind of take that next step and compete for a New Year's Six bid this year. Cincinnati doesn't totally fit that mold because they took that huge step next year. They just didn't get over the hump to New Year's Six. They won 11 last year after four the year before. Luke Fickle's second season. They're an upset of UCF away, a game that they took total control over before completely collapsing. So I don't think they totally fit that that next year's UCF mold because they were pretty darn good last year. But I think it's still Cincinnati in terms of the potential, in terms of getting over that hump. Desmond Ritter, he comes back at quarterback, had an awesome freshman season. He had like a 4-1 to touchdown interception ratio. Michael Warren's back at running back. He was only a sophomore last year. They're going to need some guys uh, to emerge at receiver. Cleo Lewis, he was the only guy last year who had more than 30 receptions. He's gone. Cleo Lewis is gone. Yes, I get that, that Mike Denbrock's offense can move the ball without production from the receivers, but it'd be great to have a guy or two emerge, and I think they're going to find some guys. Luke Fickle has been good in recruiting. Not an awesome 2019 class, but I think they did pinpoint some talent. They had a top 50 class in 2018. That was his first class. They found some real talent, got some nice transfers coming in there. So I think it is Cincinnati. I actually had them in my never-too-early top 25. Cincinnati was number... Cincinnati was number 23 in my never tour the top 25 from National Championship weekend. I still think that UCF is a better team in that conference and in the country. I think that Army is a better team. But in terms of a team that at least kind of fits that mold of the next UCF, I think it's Cincinnati. And then I think Luke Fickle leaves. I think if it is Cincinnati and they do win 10, 11, 12 games, I think Luke Fickle is gone. I really do. Very attractive candidate for programs. He was rumored to be a candidate for some jobs this year. Had that reported Maryland interest. Now he's back at Cincinnati instead. He has all that Ohio State experience. He has that interim uh, experience at Ohio State. I got to think that goes with something. Now in year three, I think if he wins 10-plus again, it's just really hard to ignore back-to-back 10-win seasons or if they go 11 and then 11 again, especially after that crap that Tommy Tuberville left in Cincinnati. 
The only problem here is I think it's looking over some of the potential jobs that could be open next year. I think it's hard to see a fit for him next year. I think this was the type of year. If if this was year three and, and being this year, 2018, if this was the second straight 10 or 11 win season in 2018, and he had been there for three or four years, I think this would have been the year to potentially take a different job. I don't really see a fit for him in many places. Like, would he really take an Illinois job if they do move on from Lovey Smith? I'd be shocked. I don't think he would take a job like that. I don't think he needs to take a job like that. Would he take a job like Syracuse if Dino Babers leaves for USC or somewhere else? See, I don't know about that. And it makes it kind of hard because Luke Fickle has spent really his, actually his entire career in Ohio in that area. You know, would he take, or maybe the better question is, would there be mutual interest from somebody out west, I mentioned USC with potentially Dino Babers. Would USC even be interested in this Ohio guy? I don't know. Like, would Cal consider him if Justin Wilcox leave for a bigger job? I've been saying Justin Wilcox for the last couple of years. I think he's on the verge of moving to one of the top 10, 15, 20 jobs in the country. Love what he's doing at Cal. I think Justin Wilcox is a riser. So if he moves on, would Cal consider that? And would Luke Fickle even want that job? Does he want to go to Berkeley? Can he do better than that? I don't know. Okay, so that's the mailbag. Hit up the pod on Twitter, at HighMotorPod, with any mailbag questions. Anytime, college football, college basketball, anything else. Thanks again to Coach Hawkins for chatting today. Uh, a reminder that we're doing more football talk next week on High Motor. One guest coming on to discuss the draft. One guest coming on to discuss college football, spring ball, all that kind of good stuff. So that's going to be fun on the High Motor Podcast next week thanks for checking out high motor today thanks for listening here on the hero sports podcast network again please come back next week tuesday february 26th we'll do it all over again i saw a friend today it had been a while and we forgot each other's names but it didn't matter because deep inside the feeling still remained the same We talked of knowing one before you've met And how you feel more than you see And other worlds that lie in spaces in